And we're going to try this one more time. Have you ever tried to date somebody who is not in your season of life? Um, I remember in the fall of 2014, actually, I uh, was dating a girl who I met. She was working at Camp, Timber, or Camp Merrimack for girls. Um, it all comes full circle here. This is, this is great. Fall of 2014, I was dating a, a girl who, um, yeah, I'd met at Camp Merrimack for girls. I was doing the RUF internship at the University of Georgia. Go dogs, uh, I guess. And uh, <laughs> the, the girlfriend I was dating at the time uh, was at Furman University, which is in Greenville, South Carolina. They're an hour and a half apart, right up I-85. And uh, so that fall, basically up until we broke up in November, I would, I would find myself oftentimes driving to go see this girlfriend of mine, right? To hang out with her and her friends who were still in college. Uh, and I'll never forget how weird that kind of felt. Um, you kind of know what I'm talking about. I was like the guy who like had graduated coming back for the senior prom, you know, like, what's up guys. Um, maybe y'all still feel that way about Caleb and I hanging out on a college campus. Um, right. People would come up to, and ask like, Hey, are you, are you a senior? Like, what's your deal? And I would kind of instinctively go on the defensive, right? I graduated last May, but my girlfriend goes here, and we are actually super close in age. We're only eight months apart, and I promise this isn't weird. Okay, thanks, bye. Like, just like, ugh, why does this feel so weird? What was I doing? I think it was this reality, right, that, like, even though I was eight months older than her, um, like, being with her on a college campus and hanging out with her friends felt like this foreign world. You could say that my, my life was like hers and also very much not like hers. I share this point because I think that's oftentimes how we think of Jesus taking on like a body and becoming human, right? We sang all those songs a month ago at Christmas. He, he's sort of human and gets me. I, I, that's, that's pretty and nice, I guess, right? But he's also God, so not entirely Right? It's like me in 2014 relating to the girl I was dating. Right? I sort of got her because I was once in college, but I also sort of didn't get her because I'd graduate a few months earlier. It's this weird uh, like limbo land we're in with Jesus. On the one hand, Jesus born in a manger. On the other hand, right, Jesus walking on water. You get him, you don't get him. You get him, you don't get him. And vice versa, right? It's this perpetual game of, uh, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And can I just say, I think, I think it actually wreaks existential havoc on some of you guys in thinking through this limbo land that you're in with Jesus. And, and here's what I mean. Let's put a picture on this image. You get in a fight with mom and dad. Everybody does it. We just got back from break, Right. And if you're a Christian, right, you start to pray or read the Bible or something, right, which is all well and good, big fan of that, until you get stuck with the question, does Jesus really understand the situation? Like, why should I be praying right now? Anybody ever, like, think that? I know I have. And, and I hear two answers to this typically, right? Answer number one is, yes, of course he understands the situation. He's God. Answer number two. Yes, of course he understands the situation. He was a human being like you were. It's kind of like an easy win for Christians, right? He gets you. 
And I don't know about you, but, but both answers, while true, they're true, both sort of feel like, meh. They both sort of feel like he, he kind of understands the situation. He's in the general ballpark of understanding. Look, look the issue I'm trying to raise here is how do you make sense of the God-man? How do you make sense of this limbo land? How do you, how do you make sense of Jesus being 100% God and 100% man, right? Not 50% human and 50% God. 100% God and 100% man, right? How do you make sense of that in a way that makes Jesus more relatable and not less? All right, so tonight we're actually going to be doing what theologians call Christology. It's got some of you theology nerds pumped right now, um, right? And here's the thing. It has everything to do with the implications for your life here today. I'm going to actually go out on a limb right now and say, uh, depending on how you think through the Christology of Jesus, will 100% make or break whether or not he is worth your time at all. In other words, I think good Christology leads us to a beautiful view of Jesus that is worth paying the sum of our lives to behold. And I think bad Christology should make you feel actually really cynical toward the Bible and Christianity altogether. And maybe that's you. I'm so glad you're here. So the stakes honestly couldn't really be that much higher. And so without further ado, I'm just going to dive into our text. And we're going to look at two points. Jesus is like you. Jesus is not like you. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. All right, so point number one, Jesus is like you. Look at me, or look with me at verse one again. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the introduction of the word then, I think should actually hearken us back to a previous section of scripture, right? Uh, draws us back to chapter three, specifically verses 13 through 17, and what is the baptism of Jesus. And I know that's not on the screen tonight, so I'm just going to read that really quickly because I actually think it's really significant to our point. Picking up in verse 13, Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Okay, so here's the deal. You can't understand the temptation of Jesus if you don't make the connection that he's just been baptized. Sometimes the way the Bible's laid out, right? Like the whole chapters and verses aren't inspired and it can kind of get confusing, but you got to make the connection between Jesus's baptism and the temptation that Daniel read for us. Why? Because this whole scene is communicating one big idea. It's that Jesus is the true and better Israel. Think about it. Think about it for a second, right? Even for those of y'all who don't know the Bible at all. Jesus is like this perfect human being, right? 
the Bible claims he never sinned. Okay, so why does he get baptized? He's in need to repent. Right? He's taking on the role of the sinner here. John the Baptist is he, he's, he's confused about it. Right? Remember what he says. I need to be baptized by you, and, and do you come to me? So why is he baptized? He's baptized because he represents you. And here's the thing, right? If you're a Christian, he can't die for you unless he first lives for you. So what does he need to do for you, right? Well, he needs to repent for you. Translation, right? He needs to turn to God in his baptism on your behalf. Because if left to yourself, you can't do it. If left to yourself, you don't do it. Jesus does it for you. And now by the power of his spirit, which the Bible says lives within every Christian, now by the power of his spirit, he equips you to now do it. The, the great reformer Martin Luther uh, once said that the entire life of a Christian is to be one of repentance. And it begins with Jesus right here in, in his baptism. So as Jesus represents you in his baptism, guess what? He also represents you, if you're a Christian, and the rest of God's people in the wilderness as he's tempted by the devil. And we see that in verse 2, right? After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> Love that little phrase. Yeah, he was probably hungry. <laughs> like, thanks, Matthew, Captain Obvious. Um, but I don't want you to miss the significance, right, of Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights, right? He is the true and better Israel. Whereas the people of Israel were led out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. You remember those like Bible stories if you grew up in the church? Uh, people of Israel were led out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus in this moment is also identifying with the plight of his people, he is the subject. The man is being led out of slavery to sin. Again, not his sin. His people's sin. He represents them. But he is also the object, right? Don't miss that verse one underscores that he's being led by the spirit. It's a passive leading. He's the recipient of God's power or of the spirit's power. God, the father leads God, the son to wander around in the wilderness in the power of God the Spirit for 40 days. I know I'm getting really deep with y'all here. We're going we're gonna to flesh this out here in a second. But every member of the Trinity is at work here to display one key aspect to the relatability of Jesus. Do you see it? Jesus identifies with weakness. It's what he knows. You know what this alternatively means, right? You know what Jesus doesn't identify with? Strength, success, competency. I think the scandal of Christianity is not merely God saves sinners. That is an intellectual statement that feels oftentimes very much divorced from your life here at Michigan. What does that mean? God saves sinners. 
what, like, what does that do for you? It's true. But I'm here to get practical, guys. What does that do for you? The, the scandal of Christianity touches down into your lived experience when it first declares that God became weak. I don't know about you, but I can relate to weakness. I can't relate to what, what it means that God saves sinners. But weakness? That's something that like, makes a lot of sense to me when I'm on the struggle bus on Wednesday. <laughs> and you're just looking like, is, is Friday here yet? What's, what's going on? Right? I'm struggling to try to get done everything that is expected of me is overwhelming. And I feel weak. I feel frustrated. I've, I feel humiliated sometimes. It's embarrassing. I, sometimes I walk in here Wednesday night and like, I've just finished my sermon and y'all are like, whoa, large group. I'm like, oh, yeah. I, I know you get me though. Christian or non-Christian, right? We're, we're, this is a feeling we all get, right? It doesn't matter who you are tonight. Every single person in this room feels unbelievably annoyed at what it means to be weak. You know, you want to know how I, how I know that? Going out on a pretty big limb and saying that. I think it's because we all understand what it's like to be tempted. And uh, as I was outlining the sermon, I was, I was planning to originally kind of unpack what that word means, tempted. And it kind of dawned on me this afternoon, that's actually kind of not even a religious word. Like, I, I think all you guys kind of understand what I mean by what it's like to be tempted. All right, we all know the pool to do something that we deep down know isn't right or vice versa, right? The pool to not do something that we know is right. It's like this power that comes over us that sometimes we control. Sometimes we can't. For instance, right? Like guys uh, about to turn 31. I'm about to be three kids deep. And uh, my metabolism just keeps slowing down. (laughs) It's like, I was telling John, worked out for the second time since the new year. And uh, Monday was like chest day. Today was leg day. And if one of you guys came up and tried to poke me, I'd probably fall over. Um, it's, it's getting bad, right? And I know, I know eating the organic peanut butter cup things that you get at Trader Joe's. I think they're called Justin's. They're great. I, I know that's not the best decision for me in this season of life. And you know what? I'm about to humble brag right now. Maybe not so humble brag. I do really stinking well at resisting that temptation to pound 16 of them at one time. Um, that is uh, up until Saturday night. The kids have just gone to bed. Been watching Homeland with my wife. It's been great. Settling into the couch, right? And it just happened. It just, like, I couldn't stop. And I'm kind of being silly, right? But, like, you know what I mean. Right? It goes for anything and everything. What is it for you? So the temptation would be great. Like fill your schedule with as many commitments as possible because there's no way you can get where you want to go or where you need to go if you don't make time for something that doesn't build your resume or advance you somehow. Maybe it's why you've, uh, you know, don't want to come to large groups some weeks. Guys, I was in college. I, I joked with John. I was like, I did REF in college. And uh, 
I'm still here, which is kind of hilarious. But the amount of times I didn't want to go to RUF because just it wasn't worth my time. I know, like, I get it. Do you feel the temptation be great? I think this is a rhetorical question on some level, low, right? Like, like, what Michigan student doesn't have the temptation to be great? It's, it's why you're here. And, and I, want, I want to be the one to tell you, Jesus doesn't identify with greatness. If you're a Christian here tonight and you wonder why Jesus has maybe felt so distant in college or maybe distant since coming back from break. Maybe it's because you were pining after all the wrong things. You're pining after success and acclaim. Things far from his very heart. If you're not a Christian here tonight and you have believed the lie that in order to come to Jesus, you need to somehow be morally great. Maybe it's because you've seen the church, right, as an institution obsessed with greatness and power. And people like me who lead the church, right, need to repent and tell you right now how much that is not the heart of Jesus. Jesus identifies with his people. If you're weak tonight, right, Jesus is like you more than you could possibly imagine. Run to him with your weakness and your hysteria and your desperation and ineptitude. That is when he actually becomes more and more real. We have to be careful though, right? Like good Christology means that Jesus is like us, but it also means that Jesus is not like us. And this leads me to my second point. Jesus is, is not like you. So here's the thing. As much as Jesus being like you makes him relatable, I actually think Jesus not being like you makes him actually all the more beautiful. I'm, I'm going to start with the obvious point to this text, right? Jesus is weak and he's in the wilderness as he is tempted by the devil. And one of my seminary professors, his name's Ligon Duncan. He's like this Southern dude. Um, he, he noted, I, th- I thought this was mind-blowing when he said this. He noted that this, this text actually would have conjured up a familiar scene in the mind of Matthew's original readers. They would have immediately noticed the similarities and differences to Adam and Eve being tempted in the garden by the devil. And so whereas Jesus is weak in the wilderness, Adam is strong in a plush garden. Jesus answers every temptation from the devil with the exact word of God. Adam answers the temptation from the devil by twisting the word of God. Jesus conquers the devil and declares the kingdom of God to be at hand as he victory marches to the cross. Adam falls to the devil and is ushered out of the garden bearing the curse of sin. Both display the weakness of frail humanity in the face of the temptations of the devil. However, only one did so without sin. Hebrews 4.15 is is kind of a famous verse in the Bible. This is what it says. It says, For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I want you to note the progression there. He sympathizes with weakness, is tempted as we are, yet does not sin. 
I think if, I, I think if you heard that correctly, if, if you read that correctly, on some level, it should boggle your mind to try and come up with a category of what it looks like to be tempted and not sin. Can you do it? Here, here's what I mean. Let's, let's attach an illustration to this. You have some hot tea to spill about what your roommate just told you about your other friend. It's like sizzling, spicy gossip. You meet up with that other friend and you are so tempted to blurt out what your roommate just said. But you're a good person. You don't do it. You're not a gossip, right? You resist that temptation, if you will. Yet you still sinned. According to what Jesus says literally in the next chapter, in Matthew 5, 28. He's talking about lust and he's saying, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. The desire was still there in your heart to do it. So even though you held back, everybody thinks you're this great person, your desire to gossip still actually condemns you. All right, so now I want you to rehear the words of Hebrews 4.15, right? Jesus is tempted as we are, yet does not sin. Again, I'm going to ask, do you have a category for what that looks like? Because I don't. I don't. Um, Kevin Young, he's this pastor now in Charlotte. He actually used to be in East Lansing. Uh, He differentiates between the internal temptation and the external temptation to sin, right? That is, Jesus is tempted externally to sin by another human being, but no temptation actually came from within him. Otherwise, that would be sin. And and the same is not true for us in our sin. Uh, And again, I realize we're like really heady right now. I'm not usually this heady. Um, I want you to listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say about how much different Jesus is in the face of temptation than we are. C.S. Lewis, this is what he says. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent of what that temptation means. He's the only complete realist. I think that last part actually makes a ton of sense if you're tracking with our text tonight the plot of our text tonight, right? The devil literally, I think it's verse eight or nine, the devil literally offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And it's not enough. It's, it's like a hurricane gale force of wind. And Jesus is the immovable rock of your salvation. Think of, think of it this way, right? Jesus experienced the most temptation to greatness 
and yet withstood. His way was always, was always going to be through weakness. And so guys, when you fall prone to the, the temptation to be great again this semester, right, and you bury yourself in an academic workload that isolates you from deep and meaningful relationships with other people, do you know what repentance looks like? What coming alive in Jesus and becoming the person you're always meant to be looks like? It actually looks like resting in your weakness. Another way to put that is being okay with being ordinary. Because you don't, you don't have to be great. Uh, back in August, I spent time with uh, a more, you could say, seasoned pastor who... Uh, lives in Memphis. His name's um, Sandy Wilson. And he was telling uh, me and a couple of other RUF campus ministers about a story with one of his congregants, uh, I guess 10, 15, 20 years ago, um, about election night. She was running for Congress in Alabama. And she wanted some spiritual advice, you know, on how to deal with the results of the election. And so she called her pastor, Sandy Wilson, and uh, asked her, asked him advice on, on the matter, right? And uh, I'll never forget his advice to her about how to handle the results of the election. You know what he said to her? He said, if you have to win, you lose. If you have to win, you lose. You know what? I think a lot of you have to win tonight. You have to win at school. You have to win at getting the girl or the boy. You have to win at networking and getting the internship or the job. You have to win. You have to. It's exhausting. How's that working out for you? Our text tonight frees you to rest in your weakness, to love your ordinariness, to not have to win. Why? Because it was through weakness that Jesus demonstrated his strength to overcome the temptation of the devil. It was through weakness that Jesus demonstrated his strength to bear the sins of his people upon a Roman cross. It was through weakness that Jesus demonstrated his love for you by identifying with you and living the life that you couldn't live. It was always through weakness. That's how the spirit of God works in this world. I mean, consider what we're doing right now. Preaching. (laughs) This is the very vehicle by which God displays his power in the world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.21. This is what he says. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Translation. It pleased God through the foolishness, through the silliness, through the weakness of what we preach to save those who believe. If you want to know Jesus, bring yourself under the preached word. Bring your friends to hear the preached word. It is the clearest week-to-week display of weakness and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Specifically, that, that God would use 
uh, broken and sinful men like myself to proclaim the excellencies of his very heart for you. His beating, affectionate, loving heart toward you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we confess to not knowing...